Good morning, church. My name is Dan Bowers. My wife Tracy and I have been members here for a little over 27 years, and it has been a joy for us. We're going to continue our worship this morning in the listening to God's Word, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you, and it would be on page 979. And as we've been doing for the last few weeks, I will read the entire text, but Larry will be focusing on just the first six words of verse 17. So follow along as I read, and I would ask that you follow along attentively. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. It teaches us about you. But Father, it is also instructive, and there are many instructions in this passage that we read this morning. Instructions to be strong, to stand firm, to take up, and to keep alert. And Father, we acknowledge that we cannot do these things in our own strength. We need your mighty hand, so we ask for that this morning. Father, thank you for the the armor that you have given us to put on that we can fight this war that we are in, and especially the helmet of salvation this morning. Father, I pray that as we put it on, that it would protect our minds, but it would not only protect us, but it would inform us of this great salvation that we have in Christ our Savior. Father, I pray that we would listen intently, intentively to your word this morning. Thank you for Larry, the gifts that you've given to him to be able to study your word and to preach it to us. I pray that his words would be faithful to the text this morning. And Father, I pray that we would be reminded that one of our greatest acts of worship to you is to trust in and obedience to your word. So I pray to that end this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you have ever forgotten uh, or neglected something very basic that led to painful consequences. Um, I threw out my, my back a few weeks ago. Uh, it, was, it was bad. It was, uh, so a lot of you know I've had my issues with back pain, and this was, it was a bad one. 
And uh, that sort of thing, I know many of you have experienced something like that at some point. And it's, it, they're very unpredictable. The, the back is really unpredictable, and you never know exactly what it is that caused such a thing. But as I was completely immobile thinking about my circumstances, it dawned on me that many basic things that I knew to do to maintain my back health, I had begun to just sort of neglect and lose sight of over the past weeks leading up to that event, uh, just in the regular busyness and rush of life. Things like uh, daily core strengthening exercises and push-ups and planks and those kinds of things. I had grown neglectful of them. And I wonder if you've done the same thing, not maybe as it pertains to core strengthening exercises with your back, but forgetting something basic that led to a bad consequence. Maybe something as simple as forgetting a key ingredient in a recipe and then having it come out and thinking, this is awful. Oh, I forgot the whatever, I'm, I'm out of my sphere here, but you know what I mean. Or, or, maybe, or maybe forgetting to set a timer when you'd put something in the oven and then realizing late in the midst of the rush, I forgot to set a timer how long I was cooking the meal and then you have a very crispy burnt something that's not supposed to be crispy. Maybe it's forgetting to set an alarm and how that led to your missing an important meeting perhaps the next day, or locking yourself out of the car, maybe. Something very basic that led to a problem. Forgetting the fundamentals sometimes can cause us to make a big mess of things. Uh, that can be true in some simple, ordinary ways, like I was just describing. But I believe it also can be true in the life of faith. Uh, when we forget basic things from God's word, uh, we are endangering ourselves. There can be real, dangerous, catastrophic consequences of that. And so throughout God's word, you'll find regular reminders of the, the basics of our faith. And even, um, even explanations in the Bible of the importance and the protective value of being reminded of basic things. So the Apostle Peter writes in uh, his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Amen. Or the Apostle Paul, whose words we're considering in Ephesians 6, he wrote in the letter to the Philippians, he said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's safety, there's protection in being told the same things over and over again. And Paul's been doing that throughout the letter to the Ephesians. He has rehearsing, he writes this letter, we're told at the beginning of Ephesians that it's to the saints, it's those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, they are believers in Christ when he writes to them, but he spends basically the first three chapters of the letter reminding them of the greatness of their salvation. And these wonderful reminders that Paul's been giving are coming to a climax in this portion of scripture that we've been studying together uh, that Dan read for us, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. 
as we, as we strive to live an upright life that pleases the Lord, that honors him, that is, as it says in chapter 4, verse 1, a life that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called, we're engaged in a war. We haven't, I have told you this before, haven't I? It's safe for you to be reminded of some things. We have an adversary who is cruel and crafty and is seeking to undermine our faith and swerve us away, if possible, from a sincere and pure devotion to the good God who has saved us in Christ. And so to, to strengthen us and support us against his attacks, uh, the Lord has not given us any special charms or chants. Spiritual warfare is not normally involving some sort of really strange phenomenon. It's not like a, an exorcist type thing that you would see in a movie. Instead, what the Lord gives us in order to wage war against this cruel and hateful enemy is he gives us the gospel basics. He reminds us of some basic and glorious truths again and again. In the, in the specific pieces of armor that Paul details in this passage, he's reminding his readers, both then in the first century and now today, of the basics of what God has done for us in Christ. I, I wonder if these sermons, I'm not, about, I'm not saying what I'm about to say because of any criticism that I've heard from any of you, so please don't think I'm responding to something, but... If these sermons in the past uh, uh, few months of going through this paragraph have seemed a bit repetitive, uh, there's a reason for that. And I think the best way I could show you the reason for that is if I point you to actually ch chapter 1, verse 13. So, so look at chapter 1, verse 13 in, in Ephesians. He's recounting the glories of this salvation. He says there in chapter 1, verse 13, in him... Who's him? You tell me. Who's, who's him? Christ. That's exactly right. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, did you, did you just notice in that one verse that five of the six pieces of armor that are mentioned in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 are mentioned right there in that one verse? And they're all basically talking about and explaining and clarifying the same thing. He calls it the word, right? We'll come to that next week, Lord willing. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He calls it the word of truth. We've been told to take up the belt of truth. Then he calls that word of truth the gospel, right? We've been given the readiness for our feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's called the gospel of your salvation. We have a helmet that we're going to be talking about today. And we, we lay hold of all that when we believed in him. When we put our faith, we have the shield of faith. And we know that, that one that's missing there in Ephesians 1.13 would be the righteousness but we know from chapter 4, it's the truth of Jesus that teaches us to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in righteousness. 
So what Paul's doing here in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is important, this teaches us something profound about how to wage war against the enemy, is he's giving you the basic and glorious truth of the gospel to arm yourselves with. It's like he's taken a, a precious jewel and he's just turning it this way and that way for you to see the different facets of the brilliance of this Jesus jewel. There's unsearchable riches that are in Jesus Christ. And we see some of those riches when we think about his truth and his righteousness and the peace that comes from the good news of salvation and how he's our shield. So he's turning this jewel and we want to turn this jewel today to think about our salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. I have, a, I have one point for you from this text. Uh, note takers, point takers. Uh, the point is the verse. Or at least the part of the verse that we're looking at this morning. So the text is going to serve as the point, and the, And the point is the text. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Salvation. Kids, if you want to count, if, you want to count, if you're bored, if you're getting a little bored already, you could just count the word salvation. I'd be delighted for you to let me know after the service how many times you heard me say the word salvation. You don't even have to count the ones that I've already said. Obviously, you can't count them, but just from right now, you can count the word salvation. What do you hear, beloved, when you hear the word salvation? Oh, we sing of it. Your love, we sang earlier, your love has saved me. What do you hear? What are you meaning when you sing about salvation? Uh, Around 20 years ago, uh, an author I know who's blessed many of you by the name of R.C. Sproul published a book I don't know if any of you have read this book. It's it's a good book. I would commend it to you. Called Saved from What? And the impetus for his writing the book was an interaction that he had with a young man several years before. A stranger who had approached him on the street and sort of blocked his way forward and asked him a simple and probing question. He asked R.C. Sproul. At the time, R.C. Sproul was a seminary professor. And this young man asked him, are you saved? And R.C. Sproul responded, again, he's a believer, he's a seminary professor, he's a believer at this time. He responded, he says, with the first words uh, that came to his mind, which was to say, saved from what? And as he recounts the story, he said the young man just seemed taken aback at that question as a response. And he He didn't seem to know how to answer exactly. He began to stammer and and stutter, being obviously unsure how to respond. He just kind of stammered something to the effect of, save save from what? You know, know, do do you know Jesus? I I don't know this young man. Maybe he just, maybe he had a better answer, but he just lost sight of it. That can happen. But I, I think as Christians, we can throw that word around. But we've got to understand what it, what it means. If, that's, if this was a problem in 2002 when R.C. Sproul wrote the book, I think it's probably more of a problem today. 
amongst Christians and amongst churches. And I don't say this because I want to be demeaning or belittling of other churches, right? It's not our job, is it, to play the church police and inspect and examine what every other church is saying or doing. Well, we want to guard this one, though. We want to guard the message of salvation in this one. And it does seem to me that in many circles, the word salvation is used without any reference of what we're really talking about. It seems as though oftentimes the language of salvation is being used to describe Jesus' work in helping us to move forward in particular areas of our lives. Maybe freedom from insecurity or freedom from fear or anxieties or stress. So the good news of Christianity sometimes is communicated as Jesus is the void that will fill your heart. He's a meter of your needs. He's a healer of your emotional distresses. And Jesus can save you from a life of purposelessness or of low self-esteem or of unhappiness. Now, those things are not entirely wrong. But when they become the entirety of our message, it becomes entirely wrong. When Paul told the Ephesians to take up the helmet of salvation, he was not talking about deliverance from low self-esteem. He was not talking about salvation from a general sense of purposelessness. What was he talking about? Well, there's many places in the Bible we could go, but I, I was just drawn to the one place where R.C. Sproul actually goes when he begins to explain from that story what is it that he began to communicate, and he went to the prophet Zephaniah. Now, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read to you a few verses from Zephaniah chapter 1. He says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind. This is what the Lord says. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Beloved, the Lord is not embarrassed to talk that way about sinners. That's his word. That's what God says. Our culture kind of has this naive sentiment about hell, as if it's the place where the fun people go to have fun in a continued way, you know? It's not that. There's no gladness. There's no laughter. Did you, did you hear the words that were used in that passage to describe it? Bitter, 
and wrath and distress and anguish and ruin and devastation and dung and fire. God's not nervous. He's not sheepish about communicating that kind of thing, as if maybe some people will think poorly of him if such things would be communicated to others. It's a fury of fire that it says there would consume everyone, all the inhabitants of the earth. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has said already in his letter to the Ephesians. You remember chapter 2, verse 3, don't you? Where Paul says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So if you had any thought, maybe that grim picture there at the beginning of Ephesians, that maybe the, the Ephesians themselves, they were just really some wretched people. No, he says it was their predicament was just like the rest of mankind. That's why we need to be saved. That's what we need salvation from, the ungodly. And that's everybody everywhere. The ungodly have a date with destruction. And it will come, we know from the New Testament, this day of the Lord that Zephaniah speaks of. We know that day will come to fulfillment at the day of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, because Peter picks up on this language of the day of the Lord from Zephaniah and other places in the Old Testament. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So on, on, on that day... It will be the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It will be a day of cosmic fire, a universal fire throughout the entire universe that will extinguish even what he says there is the heavenly bodies. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I think it has to do with the planets and the stars and the moon and the sun, all the heavenly bodies being destroyed. And the ungodly justly being judged with eternal destruction, not being annihilated, not being put out of existence. That's not what the Bible teaches, but actually enduring the eternal agony that they are owed as the righteous punishment for their own sin against God. John, the apostle of love, John writes in Revelation chapter 14 that the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. The writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire, a devouring fire, an exposing fire, an all-consuming fire. It will consume the adversaries, Hebrews 10.27. Jesus describes it as an unquenchable fire. I'll say it again. God is not embarrassed to talk this way to human beings in their sin. And we, we, beloved, I'm speaking to you, brothers and sisters in Christ right now. We should not be ashamed to tell people about this. Our culture is spring-loaded to understand injustice. Everybody's on, up, up, watching this trial, this case over here, and this case over here. I'm talking about trials in the news, and they want justice. 
And that's not a bad thing. We should desire it. Well, I mean, we, we desire justice because we're made in the image of a God who is just. That's not bad. What I'm saying is our culture, our outrage cancel culture, they have a category for being angry at injustice. But they don't seem to have a category, and we need to help introduce this category to them if they've not considered it. They do know it. The Bible says they are suppressing the truth. But by our proclamation, we could arouse them to understand this truth, that they seem to be disregarding the injustice that they have committed against the righteous God who has, as we sung earlier, he's given us life and health and breath. He's given us everything. He made us to honor, to rejoice, to receive with thanksgiving his gifts, to glorify him and praise him. And people disregard him. They ignore him. They mock him. They call him to account when something goes poorly. That's unjust, that our maker should be so disregarded and disdained by the people who he made. That's unjust. And we could tell people that. You don't have to yell at them. You don't have to yell at them the way I'm yelling right now, okay? If I was talking to somebody on the street, I would not be yelling like that. But you can tell them that, and that's, they need to understand that. We have a responsibility to tell them that. Now, you may be here this morning. And you're not, you, maybe you don't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus. I wonder how you're hearing these words about how God will reveal his wrath. It will be aimed at those who are against him. That day when in his great might and holiness, he comes to judge you personally for your sins against him. To condemn you. For the wrongdoing you have done before him, he will punish. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, he will punish you forever. It's not in doubt. He's an almighty God. He's not going to like try to do this, but not come to success. He does whatever he pleases. And it's good and right that sinners be crushed with an everlasting torment. That's how beautiful and holy and righteous he is. And that's how repugnant and disgusting it is for us to disregard him and ignore him. These sobering pictures that we have in 2 Peter chapter 3 or Zephaniah 1, and frankly, you know, I could just open, I could just turn, I could just shut my eyes and do this and probably find a place close to it where it would say something like what I've just read to you from God's word. And it's there, it's in God's word, in order to disturb those of you who are here, who are at home in your sin, to become uncomfortable in your sin. And to leave the sin that you have been treasuring and come to Jesus. Because this is, this is the good news of salvation. This is the gospel of salvation, is that through Jesus, through faith in Christ, Salvation is available to every hell-deserving sinner in this room and in all the world. Salvation has been made known in Christ. This salvation was, was promised and was foreshadowed in, in those words from Isaiah chapter 59 that Alicia got up here and, and read to us. And she's just picked up there in the middle of the chapter. But if, even if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, maybe this afternoon, and read the whole thing, it's a, but you can see it in the part that she read. It's a bleak picture. 
The, the power of this present darkness is fully evident there in Isaiah chapter 59. The people of God, these are God's people, the nation of Israel, and they were overwhelmed by evil and not just evil outside of them, not just the evil that they saw in their culture, but their own evil. They were feeling in Isaiah 59, you can read, they were feeling their helplessness to change. They needed the Lord to come in person. He must come to save them or all would be lost. And in that context of sin in Isaiah 59, of transgressions multiplied and of righteousness standing away far from the people in their sin. And in that context of denying the Lord, the Lord did, he came, he came and he brought salvation by his own arm since there was no one else who could accomplish it. He, he came, he put on righteousness, Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And we're told there in verse 20 that a redeemer would come to Zion, to those in Jacob who would turn from their transgression. Oh, there would be, reap, there would be reaping of destruction and wrath and fiery judgment for those enemies of God who would cling to their sin, but for those who would turn from their transgressions. There would be pardon and there would be salvation because the Lord himself would come in righteousness bringing salvation. And we know that Redeemer is the Lord Jesus. You know these words in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's, what, that's the picture. That's the Zephaniah 1 picture. That's the Isaiah 59 picture. That's the Ephesians 2 picture. That's the picture of mankind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But praise God, that's not where the verse ends. And that's not where the story of God ends. Because Paul goes on to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means counted righteous, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, fancy word coming up, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Do you know what it means? That Jesus is our propitiation. I don't like to just get into fancy words for the sake of fancy words, but when it's in the Bible, you, we want to know what it means. The, a propitiation is a satisfaction of wrath. It means that, that wrath, that Zephaniah 1, gloom and darkness and devastation and fire, that fiery wrath that was deserved against sinners, Jesus satisfied it because he took it upon himself. By his blood, by his sacrifice, he offered a once-for-all atoning sacrifice so that sinners could be forgiven. That our sins against him might be atoned for. That the wrath of God that hung upon us might be satisfied. He chose, he was in immortal glory forever, Jesus. And yet he chose a cross. He chose willingly to be nailed to a piece of wood by beings that he had created. And he did that because he loved us. 
because he would make a way of salvation for all to flee to him, to believe upon him, to confess yourself as a sinner and cling to Jesus. And he promised he will wash you with his blood. He will declare you righteous. And it's simply a gift that we receive by faith. Kids, I know I told you to count the word salvation, or I said you could count the word salvation. What am I at? Anybody doing it? What you got? You got some. She's got some. She's counting. 18. Okay. We have one bigger, bigger kid who's got 18 on the, on the clock. Well, as I, I, I want to, you can count salvation, but more important than you counting salvation, the word, the number of times you hear it would be to understand what it means. And I just want to, like, when I was reading this passage in Romans 3, I was just thinking about you kids, when it said that we are justified by his grace as a gift. And I just started thinking about you kids. Because it's getting to be, we're getting closer to Christmas. Maybe you've started to think about some gifts that you would like. Maybe you'll get those gifts. Maybe you won't. One thing that's probably I'm confident of is that if you do get those gifts that you're really excited about this Christmas, by the time we get to this time next year, you will have mostly forgotten about those gifts. Many things we get excited about, many things we forget about. I don't want you to forget about this gift. God has promised a wonderful, wonderful gift to every child who would believe upon him. The gift is this, that even though you're a sinner, kids, do you know that you're sinners? You're sinners. Maybe sometimes you've sinned and your parent, your mom or your dad has gotten angry with you. And that anger, parents, you'd be interested by some of the faces I'm getting at this point. (laughs) Sometimes your parents have anger. It's not very, it's maybe not godly anger. Sometimes your parents sin in their anger. But God is really angry against sin, all sin. And his anger is always good. He never goes off the top and freaks out in anger. His anger is good and righteous. And it's directed even towards kids in their sin. But I don't want you to be scared by that, kids. Because Jesus has provided a wonderful, wonderful gift for you. So much better than the stuff you might unwrap under the tree for Christmas. He has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins by trusting in Jesus. And you hear us say that every week. And you've probably heard your parents tell you about that a lot. But maybe today is a day where you especially want to not just hear about it, but actually kind of lean into that and really think about what that would mean for you. Maybe that's something you want to talk to your mom or your dad about this morning after the service. You could talk to me about it. I would love to talk with you about that after the service. I won't yell at you. I'll talk just like this. (laughs) Beloved, salvation is an amazing gift. It's all bound up in Christ, right? This is the gospel of your salvation. These same rebels against God, so richly deserving of distress and anguish and ruin and devastation and of his fiery wrath, we've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that is how God has saved us. In Christ, God rescues from death 
and wrath and bondage, transferring all who believe into a new dominion where Christ rules with unceasing, immeasurable riches of grace in kindness toward us. Grace in kindness, so rich, so abundant, it will take him, do you see in chapter 2, verse 7, it will take him the coming ages to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. One age would not be enough time for him to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. And when we start, when we start to think about those immeasurable riches and those ages to come, we're starting to touch on something very important for our understanding of what it means to to, to take up the helmet of our salvation. Because salvation, we're talking about, we want to understand rightly what it means to be saved. We need to understand the timing of it too. Because I think a lot of us, when you think about salvation and being saved, you think about something that happened in the past. And there's something very true and right. That's what Paul is talking about in chapter 2. We, we, the day when we trust in Jesus, when we confess our sins and we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins. We are made right. We are declared righteous in God's sight. But that's not the finish. That's not the end of your salvation. The, the, the salvation is f- fully accomplished. It's finished in that way. Jesus said it is finished on the cross. But we have yet to inherit the full and final glory of our salvation. Right? When Paul speaks of immeasurable riches of grace in kindness being poured out to you in the ages to come. He's talking about salvation in the future tense. When he talks there in Ephesians chapter 1, as I mentioned earlier, about believing in him, the gospel of your salvation, look there, look there at chapter 1. Again, that verse I read earlier from verse 13. Right, You believe the gospel of your salvation. You believed in him. You were sealed, he says, with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee, right, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So there's, there's future coming. We've got the down payment of this salvation now, but we don't have the fullness of it. The apostle Peter spoke of this future salvation to those wearied Christians in the first century that he was writing to. 1 Peter chapter 1, right? We know the letter of 1 Peter was written to weary Christians whom the devil was on the prowl seeking to devour. And how Peter began was reminding them of the future glory of their salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope, right? Hope is future. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, there's a salvation. We, we've got, in Christ, he has rescued us, and yet in Christ, he has promised the full rescue, the final rescue, the fullness of it is yet to come. It's this yet to come. It's this ready to be revealed salvation that Paul refers to when he exhorts the Thessalonians to take up the helmet of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. Since we belong to the day, beloved, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope 
of salvation. The hope of salvation. There's a salvation coming, beloved. It's going to make all the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing. That may be the most profound thing I could say about this future salvation. It's not something I'm saying about it. Actually, it's something the Apostle Paul said about it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to, it, to us. Think about that glory. Think about that salvation. That all the sufferings of this present time, it's like nothing, not even worth comparing because such glory is coming. This is, this is by God's grace. This is the redemption that is found in Christ. This is the hope that we were saved for. Not just saved from something, but we were saved for something. We were chosen by God. We were predestined by God. He's talking about there in the first chapter. We were called by God's grace. We were made alive and we were justified and we were adopted and we were raised with him and we were seated with him and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit for this future inheritance, an inheritance, a world that is totally purged of all the effects of sin. Where what is good and right and true is all that we know everywhere all the time. Can you imagine a world like that? What news headlines have you been thinking about this week? God promises a world, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where everywhere, all the time, in everything, what is good and what is right and what is true, by God's definition, is celebrated. A world of perfect peace and justice where nothing puts to shame. Nothing confounds us. That was a particular statement in God's word as I was thinking about the word salvation that resonated with me this week. Israel, this is Isaiah 45, 17. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Nothing troubling. Nothing perplexing, nothing confounding. That's our salvation. No more, we, I mean, we sang, right? No more sorrow, no more sickness, no mourning, no death, no arthritis, no chronic fatigue, no multiple sclerosis, no insomnia. No asthma or anxiety or depression or PTSD or cancer or COVID. A world where we will bask forever in the sunshine of his smiling face with no distractions and no dulled affections. Don't you long for that, Christian? Nothing in the way of our experience of that fullness of joy and those pleasures forevermore that are found at God's right hand. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And we will, we will, beloved. 
The ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. I kind of want to do it. I kind of want to sing. Gail, you want to? I am bound. I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. Now, Sue was just very kind to you, but you did not need the word. You did not need that word. I hope you know that line. Oh, it's, it's going to be a great day. But you know, it gets tiring while we wait. And I mean, I got to wrap this up. It's just, it's, we're talking about salvation. It's hard to do that in 40 minutes. We got to wrap it up. We got to take, take the helmet, okay? That's the salvation. We got to take it. Put it on. Hold it forth. That's what we're doing. That's why we gather, you understand? You want to think about this more? You want to think about putting on the helmet of salvation more? You could just read through the book of Hebrews in its entirety. The word helmet's not used, but I think the whole book of Hebrews is about putting on the helmet of salvation. You could listen to it. You can listen to the book of Hebrews preached to you. It's on the website. I forget what the date of that is, but you can just, you can just hear the book of Hebrews preached as a sermon. It's about putting on the helmet of salvation. Weary, discouraged Christians. That's how we could get, that's how the enemy works to... Uh, attack us sometimes, right? Sometimes it's just flagrant immorality. We have the breastplate of righteousness to resist the schemes of the devil to entice us to immorality. Sometimes it's lying. Sometimes it's divisions and conflict within the church, but sometimes it's just exhaustion. It's just the hopelessness and the discouragement of waiting day after day and week after week for this glory, and it doesn't come. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we can just weaken in our resolve. And so we gather together. It says this in your, in your bulletin. We gather on the first day of the week to encourage one another. Well, we didn't just make that up, you understand. That's in the Bible, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Don't make that a habit. Do not make a habit of neglecting the assembling of ourselves together because we're called to gather together to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, we seek to do that for one another when we gather on Sunday. But you know, we're so needy and we're so weak. We need that kind of encouragement every day. We need to be encouraged. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. 
Beloved, we stand firm by faith. We take up the helmet of salvation and we stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He will come. He will come in a little while. And we need to encourage one another with that, beloved. Everyone in this room is needy for encouragement every day. I know that because that's what the Bible says. Exhort one another, encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That may be just something you want to put in your calendar this week. You want practical application? So this is an abstract sermon. What do I do? Put it in your calendar this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Just line it up in your calendar. What saint are you going to encourage this week? With the hope of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, beloved. No power of hell, no scheme of man will be able to separate us from that coming inheritance which he is keeping for us and which he is keeping us for. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that prayer of the Apostle Paul will be fulfilled that the God of peace will himself sanctify you completely and your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so we will praise God for it to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Oh, beloved, there's much weariness. There's much discouragement. There's much heartache and much tribulation out there. But let us not grieve as those who have no hope. Let us encourage one another with these words. Hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to bear witness to your excellencies by remaining strong and hopeful, content in a world that so frequently entices us towards despair. Father, I pray right now for those in this congregation who have been feeling hopeless This is not a condition that we as your people are immune from. But your word is truth. Your promises are sure. Your salvation is certain. And so we pray, Father, that you would uphold those who are particularly weary. And would you help all of us to be laboring in the strength that you supply to help each other hold fast to that hope that we have, that helmet of salvation. May we praise you for it. May we cling to it, trusting that you are faithful and you will surely bring all your promises to pass. Help us to look forward to that day when with 
the ransomed in glory. We see your face at last, and it will be our joy through the ages to sing of your love for us. Help us to keep our hope set there and encourage one another all the more as we see that day drawing near. We ask for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.